Okay, chapter number nine. There are a couple of things that I want to say before I even read anything this morning. And, and that is we understand this, that, uh, and we're promised this. We're told by Christ that this would be true, that in this lifetime there will be trial and there will be tribulation. Uh, it shouldn't surprise us when it comes. As a matter of fact, we should expect it, and there's a sense in which maybe we should have some joy when it does come. Uh, because we know that in all of our trial and tribulation, that the Lord is using us to accomplish good things in one way or in another. And we may, may not be obvious to us, uh, but we know this, that very often those trials and tribulations that fall upon us turn out to be encouragements for uh, other believers uh, in Christ. Now, I want to remind us this morning that very often the things that we're going through here are, there's a sense in which there's a parallelism going on here between the church that John is writing to uh, in the church today in Israel in, in Egypt and the plagues that fell upon them. I mean, as we're reading through here, some of these things sound very familiar to the plagues that fell uh, upon Egypt. And at the same time, as we said before, every believer should expect to have trial and tribulation in their life, sometimes relatively minor, sometimes more severe. We've all experienced things in our lifetime that we might have considered to be plagues of a sense. Lori and I are right now in our home. We have been infested with fruit flies. <laughs> and we have tried everything in the world to get rid of those little suckers. And they seem to multiply and be everywhere that they possibly can be. I spent probably an hour yesterday standing in front of our, uh, our, our main window in our living room squashing those suckers <laughs> because I got sick and tired of them getting between me and my football game. <laughs> and I say that with a light heart. Most people would consider that to be a relatively insignificant, very minor kind of thing. But things like that sometimes turn out to be very great big deals uh, to us. And, uh, and when something like that happens, we don't begin to think for one minute that God has left us, that God has departed from us and all of that. We accept those things as just simply a, a, a part of life that we go through and we all suffer through and sometimes in very minor ways that are just as aggravating as they possibly can be. I'm just thankful there are not gnats that fly up your nose and in your eyes and things like that. That uh, we would appreciate a prayer or two this week to get rid of those little suckers. Uh, another thing I want to bring to your attention this morning is we're going to be getting into some very serious business, uh, and, and I just want to pass over this, but I want to say this, that we need to understand as bad as things get in the passage that we're going to read today, this is still not God's final judgment. There's a final judgment that is coming beyond all of this. Okay, so we, have, we are in chapter number 9, and we 
had got to about uh, verse 11, and that's where we're going to pick up this morning. And, and just remember that what has taken place here is, is God is given to the evil one, the key to the abyss, and he's opened up uh, the gate to the abyss, and this smoke came out, and out of the smoke came these terrible creatures, beings, spiritual beings, demonic beings that uh, are very strange in their description because in some way they look like locusts, in some way they are like scorpions, in other ways they're like horses, in other ways they're like people. I have never seen a picture of one of these things and I can't imagine what one would look like because it would take a lot of reading into things to come up with any kind of a visual depiction of what we're talking about here. Uh, but we understand that what lies behind all of that is the important thing, is that is this spiritual evilness that has been unleashed upon the world. And, and, and like we said before, the best explanation of these particular beings are demonic beings that are released from hell that are permitted to torment people specifically for five months. And I didn't mention this last week, but the lifespan of a, of a locust is about five months. Uh, but in another important aspect of this is, is notice here that the people of God, there are people of God that are still in the world at the time this takes place. And they're protected from it. It's just like when you consider the plagues of Egypt. In the beginning, and we've seen this, that some of the things that we've seen is the people of God suffer right along with everybody else. That happened in Egypt. Israel suffered in the beginning. When the Nile turned to blood, they suffered just like the Egyptians did. But there came a time when God began to distinguish between the Egyptians and the Israelites where the plagues would fall upon the Egyptians but the Israelites would be totally unaffected by it. That sort of thing is going on here in this book of Revelation. That even though some of these things described by this book, obviously believers are, are going to go through too. But there's this point where this distinction begins to be made between those who are the people of God and those who are not the people of God. And you can see that so very clearly here. In chapter 9 in the book of Revelation. So this horde, this mass of demonic beings has been released from hell into the earth. Verse 11. They have this king over them, the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon. In, in Greek he has the name Apollyon. The first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still coming after these. And the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, one saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released so that they might kill a third of mankind. And the number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. 
And this is how I saw in the vision the horses and those who sat on them. The riders had breastplates the color of fire and of hyacinth and of brimstone. And the heads of the horses are like the heads of lions. And out of their mouths proceed the fire and smoke and brimstone. A third of mankind was killed by these three plagues. By the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which proceeded from their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents and have heads. And with them they do harm. And the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands. So as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and silver and of brass and of stone and of wood. Which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their deaths. Remember, there had been an angel flying in mid-heaven who had announced after the first four trumpets had blown. There were three woes coming. The last three trumpets. We studied the first of those last. It was the it was the fifth trumpet last week, which would be the first woe. This week we're talking about the sixth trumpet, which would be the second woe. Uh, these woes being things that describe, even though conditions had gotten bad, they're far worse. I mean, as we studied that passage last week, we're probably going, gosh, how destructive this is and how awful and terrible this is and all of that. But you need to understand that as these woes progress, they themselves get worse. What we're looking at here... With the sixth trumpet in what would be classified as the second woe is basically the invasion of a massive army into the world. Now, I want to make a few comments from verse 11. These demons, as we've read up to that point, studied up to that point, they have a king over them who's the king of the abyss. We, we understand this is, this is the morning, the star who fell from heaven, and we know that he goes by many names, the devil, Satan, the evil one, the prince of the power of the air, the deceiver. Uh, here you have the Hebrew, it's Abaddon, and in the Greek it is Apollyon, and they both, both mean destroyer. He's called the destroyer. This evil one is called the destroyer. Why? Well, because he's all about destruction. He is the paradox of the Savior. He's exactly the opposite of the Savior. Jesus saves. Jesus builds up. Jesus strengthens. Apollyon, Abaddon, the destroyer, he destroys everything that he is allowed to. But he does nothing 
without the permission of God. Sometimes I think people have this picture that there's two forces working against one another. There's evil and there's good and you know, and hopefully that eventually the good will beat up the evil and, uh, and all of that. And, and we know that the good leader is God and the bad leader is Satan and, and all of that. But we need to understand something, that God is all-powerful. God is almighty. There is nothing that exists apart from his will. And even though you and I don't understand it, we know this, that God created the devil. Okay? And we understand this, that God has the power and the authority to squash him like a grape at any time he wishes. He has nothing on God at all. He has no power, has no authority over God at all. Now, there's some things in the Bible that are hard to understand for you and I. This whole concept of evil and where evil came from and, and, you, you know, and all of that. But it comes down to this, either God is God or God's not God. And if there's anything that exists apart from him, then he is not God. He's not an absolute God. He's something less. But the evil one is called the destroyer because he loves to destroy. He loves to tear down. The sixth angel sounds. There's a voice that comes from the altar, and supposedly this, presumably this is the altar of incense that stands before the throne of God. And we know that there was a replica of it in the tabernacle and a replica of it in the temple. But we know that there are only replicas of the reality that exists in the heavenly throne room that we studied all the way back in chapter 5. And one of the things we should remember about that altar of incense is the incense was, was symbolic of the prayers of the people of God going up to him, rising up to him in, uh, into heaven and being a pleasing aroma uh, to him. And it's also, we were told, that the souls of the martyrs are there underneath this altar and they're crying out to God constantly, when? When are we going to be, when is revenge going to be brought upon those who have done so wrongly to us? And that they were told, not yet. Not yet. But one of these days that will come. But, but presumably, this is a voice of God speaking forth. From that altar. And instructions are given to release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Now, you and I, I don't, I probably, maybe one or two people in here have seen the Euphrates River in their life. Uh, I, I never have. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure I ever will have. Uh, you know, that sort of thing. But you need to understand that in those days that people knew about the Euphrates River. It was, Euphrates River was a central thing to ancient Near Eastern history. It had been, and it had been for a long time. 
the beginning, the sources of it actually are go all the way up into Turkey and really would not be too far away from those seven churches that we studied back early on in the book of Revelation. So this is an example of, uh, of God through John using a picture of something that people were somewhat familiar with. The Euphrates River was known to be this mighty river. It was, it was the major part that, that formed the northern part of what, we call, what was called the Fertile Crescent. It was it, it, the Tigris and the Euphrates River there together, which actually become one river immediately before they dump into the Persian Gulf. Uh, but just for your interest, the modern-day Euphrates River is 1,740 miles long. It is the watershed for 193,000 square miles. It dumps roughly 194,000 gallons per second of water into the Persian Gulf. You know, by any standards, we would consider that to be a significant river. The Old Testament helps us to understand the context of this because there's a passage in which the, the coming invasion of the Assyrian army is likened to the Euphrates River overcoming its banks. And so I think that is a good picture of what we need to have in our minds at this point, and that is that what is happening here is this army is released into the world and it spreads. This you know, up to this point, some of these things we've talked about have been localized, but now what we're looking at is a worldwide war. Something that affects the whole world. And it's like this river, this massive river, this army just overflows and it goes everywhere. There is no place that's safe from it. I mean, Hurricane Florence is teaching us not us, but people in North Carolina and South Carolina, just how destructive the force of water can be. Uh, but the force of this invading army is going to be the most destructive thing that has ever happened in human history in regard to human life. There is nothing else that comes close to it. For angels have been restraining this. We don't know for how long, but now the message has come to them to release this mass for a reason. So that they might kill a third of mankind. I don't know if... Uh, you're that interested in these kinds of things, but I always am. And this is one of the things we talk about in our environmental science class. Uh, but there are a couple of websites you can go to, and they're just tickers. And what they're doing is they're ticking off the, the, the population of the world as it increases. There's another place you can go to. It's the United States. It tells you, you know, how, ra how rapidly the population's increasing. Uh, so... This was on September the 12th at 9.57 a.m. 
the population of the United States was 328 million people. Population of the world was 7.5 billion people. We're talking about an army here that has 2 million warriors in it. I mean, 200 million warriors in it. Understand, that's more than half of the whole population of the United States as we speak. The entire military of the United States today is, and this is including active reserves, is around 2 million people. So what we're talking about here is a force that is 100 times the military power of the United States. And we, by far, are the greatest military power that's ever existed on planet Earth. I mean, if these things are to be taken literally, we're talking about a war uh, of unbelievable magnitude. As we said before, that affects every square inch of planet Earth. And in that war... A third of the population of humankind will perish. In other words, if we were if it were to happen today, we're talking about two point five billion people dying. Just in comparison, sixty six million people died in World War Two. 2.5 billion is a whole lot more than that. Now, I do want to caution us in this, and and for us to always remember that the the book of Revelation is full of signs and symbols and things like that. And all of this could simply be signs and symbols of, of a spiritual war that takes place. In other words... This could be a description of a spiritual war takes place. It's not really manifested physically in the same sense that we would expect other wars to be. But we do know that it brings about the demise of a third of mankind. That should scare all of us. And if we're to take these things literally, we have to ask the question, has such a thing taken place yet? And, and I don't think there's any ground for us to say that it has. And if it hasn't, why is it so many people believe today that Jesus will be back any moment? I mean, when something like this happens, it's going to happen in such a way that people won't be able to escape the reality of it. Jesus talked about before he came that there would be rumors of wars and there would be wars. This is like the war above all wars. The the, the interesting thing about it, guys, is we haven't gotten to the Battle of Armageddon. It doesn't come up for many, many more chapters. This is just another thing that that encourages to understand this. That this book is comprised of separate seven separate visions that basically describe different aspects of the same things. 
that more than likely what's being described here, it actually appeared in chapter 6 at the very end of it. Now the world was crumbling and shaking and, and, and all of this and unbelievers were, were trying to hide from God in caves and under rocks. And one of the things that stands out in all of it that even when confronted with God himself, his power and his might in, in undeniable dimensions, People still refuse to repent. Just like we saw in chapter 6. The same thing here. It's a measure of the hardness of the human heart. And when God manifests himself, even in ways like this, people still want to cling to their idols. Idols of gold and idols of brass. Idols of paper. Idols of this, idols of that. Who can't do anything. There's a passage in Isaiah that makes idol worship basically into a joke. Guy goes out in the woods and he chops down a tree. And he comes to brings the wood back. And he, he takes some of the wood and he uses it to cook his food. And he uses some of it to warm his house. And he takes the rest of it and he carves it to an idol and then he bows down and worship it. It's ridiculous. Can that chunk of wood do anything? Can it see? Can it hear? Can it talk? Can it, can it make anything happen? And the answer to that is absolutely no doubt about it, no. Even the most simple-minded person would see that. And yet there are people in this world that cling tightly to their idols. I mean, we live, in, we live in a culture today where self-gratification seems to be the idol that stands above and beyond everything else. I mean, eyes come in all kinds of forms. I mean, things get more ridiculous with every day that passes. I mean, some of it is so ridiculous, it's hard not to laugh at it. But it's what we should expect when we see massive numbers of people turning away from God. It's people chasing after idols, and the idol has become me. What I want, what I like, what I think is best. 
I mean, all idols eventually come down to that. Do you understand that? The, the, the real idol issue that people have is they idolize themselves. That's something that Jesus has delivered us from. Sometimes when you hear Christians speak, it seems like the message very often is still, it's all about me. That's not the message of Christianity at all. It's about you. Don't get me wrong. Are you really, 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 really super duper, unbelievably special because you're a believer? Yes, 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 you are. But is it all about you? And the answer is no. It's all about God. It's all about Him. It's all about His glory. It's all about His love. You and I are products of His love. It's all about His sense of right and wrong. It's all about His, his, his unbelievable hatred of evilness and wickedness. Well, and there's some things that you and I always need to remember about this. That the unconverted human heart is cold toward God. And if our heart is not cold toward God, it's only for one reason. It's because he's warmed it. Because he loves us, because he has chosen to save us from all this destruction. And let me just say this. Uh, there's reason for us to understand that in this, that, that, that believers are protected. Why? Why can we make that assumption? It doesn't come right and say it. But, it's, but it tells us this, that the ones who are suffering are the unrepentant. So the question comes down to this, are we ready? I mean, if Jesus appeared suddenly where this massive army appeared suddenly, whether it be spiritual, whether it be physical or, or whatever, are we where we need to be? Are we right with God? There's some amazing people in the world, and you know the people that amaze me the most of everyone are the Christian martyrs. People who very often, very willingly give, willingly give their life to advance Christ in this world, to advance the gospel in this world. How often do we even give thought of them? That, 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 as we're talking right now, as I'm speaking, there's all likelihood there is a believer somewhere in this world that is dying for Jesus. Literally dying for Jesus. 
point I'm trying to make is this, is life may be awful in some ways, may be terrible in some ways. And sometimes we feel like maybe God's deserted us. I just want to assure you this morning that God has not deserted you, has not deserted our brother, sister, martyr who's dying right now for Jesus. God loves you. An unbreakable, unbelievable love that is eternal. He will not take it away from you. There's nothing that will separate you from the love of Christ. He will be with you in the good times. He will be with you in the bad times. He will be with you in your trials and tribulations. He will not abandon you. He will not leave you. He will strengthen you to endure that which you could not do otherwise. Don't give up on him because he will never give up on you.